I'm Chris Lindstrom, and this is the Food About Town podcast. In episode 75 of the Food About Town podcast, I talked with two sommeliers from Farmer's Creekside Tavern and Inn, which is going to be opening soon in Leroy, New York. Uh, it's a very exciting opening. It's going to be multiple floors of dining, including one right on the side of the creek, uh, one that's more of a tavern style and a fine dining style restaurant on the top. They have a very wide-ranging knowledge in wine. And uh, Chris Grocky is the uh, general manager, and Drew Chappett, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, is another sommelier there. He's the director of wine. And I had him over to the studio. Uh, they brought over three wines to taste. We talked about wine in general, uh, you know, what you can be drinking this summer, and also talked about how they're handling wine at the restaurant. Uh, I was really happy to have both of them over. Chris and Drew were very engaging and really passionate about wine. I mean, it, it's great when the passion really, it, it's infectious. I, I was wanting to take sommelier classes after listening to them and tasting through the wine. And my wife joined partway through too. And we had, we had a really good time uh, tasting these interesting wines. So uh, I, hope, I hope the wine fever catches you too. And if it does, make sure to stop out to Farmer's Creekside Tavern and Inn in Leroy when it opens. I think it's going to be a great dining experience and a chance to check out small town a small town main street in the early stages of revitalization. So thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to share out to Farmers Creekside, uh, Chris Grocky or Drew Chappett. And you can reach me on Food About Town on Facebook, at Stromy on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. So this is, well, it's technically still spring. We're getting spring showers today here in Rochester, but it's become a little bit brighter and a little bit brighter still since I've got two fine guests here today. And why don't you introduce yourselves, gentlemen? Absolutely, Chris, and thank you very much. I am Christopher Grocky. I'm the general manager of Farmer's Creekside Tavern and Inn, about to open in Leroy, New York. Yeah, I've gotten that mixed up a couple times. Farmer's Creekside Tavern and Inn. You got it, Not yes. Inn and Tavern. No, Tavern and Inn. Tavern and Inn, and across from me. I'm Drew Chappett. I am the wine director at Creekside. So, on uh, the last podcast, I talked a little bit about Farmer's Creekside Tavern and Inn. It is a high-concept restaurant, I think, in a lot of ways. Ambitious project out in Leroy. And we hear that a lot, yeah. Yeah, and it's... <laughs> But it's a kind of project that I'm truly excited about. I went out for a preview dinner. Was that about three weeks ago or so? Yes, sir. So three weeks ago, uh, we had there was a number of media people out there for a preview dinner, and the space is special. It's interesting. A lot of reclaimed stone, fantastic design, uh, multi-concept. It has a approachable tavern style place. Actually, want to let Chris talk about it since he is the general manager. Oh no, you're uh, you're hitting it on the head. It's a it's a gorgeous 200 year old building. The uh, the owner Bill Farmer has been working on it uh, over the course of the last decade, really actively for about uh, uh, four five years, and uh, has just done an absolutely stunning job taking a piece of history, really, 
and restoring it into just a, a gorgeous venue. <laughs> it's a four-level building. So as you said before, there's the, the tavern component, which is uh, the, the mid-level. Then we've got a beautiful uh, patio that sits right on Oatka Creek which is uh, right in the middle of Leroy, New York, and just absolutely gorgeous. We are uh, doing a split concept, so the bottom two levels that I just mentioned will have, uh, will have kind of a, a nice casual fare, good, uh, easy feel, seven days a week, lunch and dinner. Then we're going to do a, uh, a fine dining menu upstairs, and we're going to call that the one main menu because it sits right overlooking uh, Main Street, and we are one Main Street. And it, I mean, really is kind of the new cornerstone of Main Street, Leroy. Small, small town Main Street, uh, sort of transformed into something that everybody can enjoy on some level or another. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just it's it's got such history to it. It's really something. It is a it's a special building, as as you can tell when you go out there. And we just have to make the the food and beverage and service equally as special. Yeah, and this I mean that starts with. I mean, this is a staff that has a lot of wine experience, obviously, and that's what we're here to talk about today. We're obviously going to talk about Farmer's Creekside Tavern and Inn, uh, but we're here to talk about wine generally. Um, this was, I wouldn't say the push I needed in that direction, but it kind of spurred me on to go do a little more exploring, and everything I go get into kind of goes in phases. You know, I'll dive into spirits, I'll dive into craft beer, and recently, I've been trying to learn more about wine. And I think for me, the complicated thing is it is very dense. Wine is amazingly dense. There's so much information out there. And for a... Drew actually knows about 92% of it, too. Well, it's pretty perfect. impressive. Yeah. yeah, I think 92 is enough. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, you like never that. stop learning. You really don't. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's challenging. You, and you see, um, you watch like documentaries on Netflix, and you look at all the wine menus, and you can learn these small little things here and there. But it is a, it's a challenging field. And to have a place like Farmers, you have a pretty experienced wine staff there, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think the thing is, you're, you're talking about these documentaries like Psalm. Everyone's seen Sideways at this point. Um, so, documentaries like Sideways. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the life of Paul Giamatti. Yes. <laughs> uh, but no, you know, there's, there's definitely this sort of um, general people want to know more about wine now, and they're starting to become more affluent about it. And at Creekside, like you've said, we you know me and Chris are level two sommeliers. Uh, we have Ian Criticos, a level one. We have another guy, Alex Cates, who is probably equally knowledgeable. He just hasn't gone through the court yet. Um, and so people want to know more. And that gives us the opportunity to do some different things, you know, as opposed to like California Cabernets and Chardonnays and Pinots that have been beaten into the ground. Um, you know, we can approach it and say, we know you like that, but let's start a dialogue. Let's start a conversation and we can take you to, you know, a Pinot from Loire Valley or Norella Mascalese from Etna, which is, you know, something we really excited about right now but just having the level of talent we do at creekside is really exciting for us because it means we can take more chances and we can really you know foster that dialogue with our guests and that's what it's all about too yeah what well, i think that's it offers you some interesting opportunities because you don't it's not just any fine dining environment you have the chance to bring wine to the more casual environment as well that is approachable, but not necessarily what everybody already knows. I think that's maybe even the more exciting part. Sure, you know, you go to a fancy restaurant, you get a nice wine list, and hopefully you have, uh, you know, enough knowledge to kind of figure it out a little bit, or a capable service 
staff member, a sommelier on the floor that can uh, guide you through a carefully designed list. That's pretty standard, but having access in a casual dining venue to that kind of list where maybe you're just there for a burger and fries, but you want to have maybe a special bottle, you know? It's the, speaking of sideways, it's the Cheval Blanc that you pull out and, <laughs> and eat at the Burger King or wherever he was, you know? Sure. And it's, you know, there's it's places like that and uh, like the FLX Wienery in uh, south of Geneva that uh, Christopher Bates, that Christopher Bates runs. It's a hamburger hot dog place with a wine selection. A great wine selection. Uh, yeah, absolutely fantastic. Christopher does a wonderful job. So, I mean, it's that crossover and also the approachability. It's something that can be intimidating to somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. Well, and I think that sort of speaks to the new generation of sommelier. Um, I mean, before you sort of had this vision of like this French sommelier with the test of in sort of turning up their nose at your general questions. Um, but at least the people in our wine group in our age seem just to be, it's more focused on getting people excited about wine, you know, engaging with them and just, you know, really being inviting in our conversation. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think everyone in our generation kind of wants to cut through the BS. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We don't want people to feel as though it's something that they have to do. And it's just, a, it's a turnoff. I mean, wine is sublime. It's absolutely incredible when it's paired correctly with food. And to to kind of have to force yourself into it, that, I mean, why? Why would you? We're, we're here to say, hey, we're really excited about this. We're going to hold your hand and, you know, turn you on to a couple of dorky things that maybe you can use at your next house party. Yeah, because that's, that's the other thing. I mean, we have, we have a wine region here that is fantastic. Um, but it's, you can become locked into a specific amount of uh, wines that we excel at here in the Finger Lakes. And then it's kind of, I guess the way I'm taking it right now is it's kind of a stepping off point is I can learn about what we do well here by visiting wineries around our area and then explore something maybe off to the side of that, maybe, you know, a reasoning not just from here, but from from Germany or another country where it kind of originated. You want to talk about Riesling? You always want to talk about Riesling. Of course I want to talk about Riesling. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, But yeah, I mean, to that point, when I first got into wine, you know, three years ago, um, I sort of had... All right, let's... So for a second, so... Let's let's dive into that question for a second. So how how did you get into wine? I mean, and you said three years ago. Three years ago, yeah. Well, honestly, three years ago, I was uh, in this small mine community in Mexico uh, getting my anthropology degree. Um, One, that sounds fascinating. What area in Mexico? Yeah. Uh, so it's called Coba. It's about three hours south of Cancun. Um, and I'd been going down there since 2004 um, through my undergrad and graduate research. Um and it sort of got to the point where I needed to focus on a career and, you know, make money. And really Minor the only... Concerns. Right, yeah, you know. But uh, the only jobs I was really finding were, you know, teaching jobs at colleges and things like that. And as much as I loved doing the research and being down in the village, I just didn't see myself doing that for the rest of my life. And kind of at the same time, you know, I'd casually drink wine all the time. And I couldn't have told you the difference between a Chardonnay and a Cabernet. Um, but I wanted to be able to sort of, you know, pick out wines that I knew a little bit about. Um, so I started just reading a little bit about wine and someone actually got me this big coffee table book, just all about wine. And I probably read that in about three days. And I was, just, I found that I was like super into it because there's history, there's, you know, different cultures doing different things with wine. So it kind of tied into anthropology for me. And, uh, then around that time I read an article in Forbes magazine 
that said the master sommelier degree was the hardest exam in the world. And you know, I didn't even know what a sommelier was, but I read that and I thought, well, that's interesting. You can do a career in wine. Yeah, What's yeah. that about? Um, when you know, I'm, I'm masochistic, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> yeah, and that's I like immediately when I hear you say that, I mean, like, oh, oh, it's the hardest. Okay, that sounds like something I really want to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's either sort of like you say, oh, that's cool, or you know, oh, I want to pursue that. Um, so I just started looking into the court, and around the same time, like the documentary came out. Um, so I watched that, and uh, that day I signed up for the test, passed it three months later, um, and then we just took our level two in November. So I just kind of haven't looked back since then. Yeah, and that's that's a pretty aggressive path, too, to be taking your first level in three months after you really get into it. Yeah, well, I mean, it just sort of like woke a passion in me, and I just discovered like I wanted to find out everything about wine, which there's just an infinite amount to know. Um, so there's never any shortage of days you can learn something new about wine um so you know i just i bought a ton of books i read everything i could i tasted as much wine as i could afford and yeah that's awesome well before before we let uh things go too far uh why don't we uh you did bring some stuff for tasting we sure did so why don't why don't we start with one and then we'll dive into mr grocky for a second all right yeah we're gonna go hoda and kathy lee here and drink during uh during the broadcast. Absolutely. I mean, equally, we're equally as professional as they are, so. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds except for, great. Except for I think they're getting paid a little bit more than I am, so. Uh, <laughs> All right. Pass me a glass here. We're going to fill up, Chris. Beautiful. Do you want to talk about the wine? Yeah. Uh, so we have a Cremant de Loire, the Maison Fouché, which is a sparkling wine out of France, just not from Champagne. Um, it's from well, the Loire Valley in the middle of France. And this is a blend of yeah, coming in real nice. Chenin Blanc, yeah, there it is. <laughs> Chardonnay, and Pinot Noir. Um, and it's actually going to be on our by the glass list. Yeah, this is good stuff. People, um, I, I, if I ask you where the most sparkling wine in France is produced, you would say... I would say Champagne region, there, of course. There you go. So um, seconds to Champagne is the Loire Valley, but... I mean, when's the last time you had a sparkling wine from the Loire Valley? Uh, right now, okay. about <laughs> the last time. Um, but it's something I actually heard. I heard something about the Loire, Loire Valley recently on a podcast I was listening to about wine. Because, of course, now that I'm getting into it, I want to listen to other people who know it talk about it. And they were talking about the Loire Valley. So why is the Loire Valley, Loire Valley interesting to you as a wine person? Well, for starters, you don't have to pay $100 to buy a bottle of sparkling wine. Amen to that, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there's definitely more value to be had with Cremants, specifically from the Loire Valley. Um, Chris is a big fan of Chenin Blanc, so maybe I'll let him talk a little bit about the Loire. Yeah, the, um, the white wine production is much, much higher. Great sparkling wines, great white wine. Uh, the, the main grape of note is Chenin Blanc really a high acid aromatic varietal that can make some beautiful, very ageable wines. We've got a, a couple of things here with some significant acid today. Um, we'll go back to the Riesling talk in a second when we get into that one. But uh, yeah, Shannon has a, a textural sense to it that really kind of, it, it's seductive. It can uh, you know be sharp down the center of the palate and just a little viscous, a little oily, kind of a lanolin feel. Uh, toward the edges of the palate, and as it ages, it really integrates and just gets this this fullness, and it goes through these different phases and layers on your tongue, and just by itself, absolutely incredible. But then when you're pairing it with fine cuisine, you end up with just this explosion together. See, so, I would say the same thing about Riesling. 
<laughs> you could, you could, yeah, substitute Riesling in that particular discussion. Maybe of slightly different tasting notes, but yeah. Sure. Well, so part of what I want to do today is when we talk about these things, I want to make sure we tie back to things that people can actually go and buy in some form or another. I know you won't necessarily be able to get these specific ones in stores because you deal with specific distributors and whatever else and personal connections. But I want to make sure we tie it back to things people can actually go and buy, generally speaking. So if we can talk about, you know, hey, uh, you know, Chenin Blanc in a generic sense and say, hey, this is something you may be able to get at a store. just want to make sure we link it back because it's, again, something if somebody hears this and they want to try it out, want to make, again, try make it a little approachable from that perspective as well. Part of the journey is discovering producers as you go, and one of the one of the frameworks that you can you can use to um, tell whether or not you're going to like something is you know try wines from different regions. Um, I'd say regions more than grapes because mm-hmm. you know styles can be very very different on on grapes that are you know Cabernet from Bordeaux versus Cabernet from Napa Valley is going to be very very different. Interesting. Uh, so yeah, you know, familiarize yourself with maybe a couple of regions. You know, say okay, I don't like this. This isn't something I want to go back to. I do like this. So then you can you can look anything from the the old world Europe uh, will have the region right on the bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it is a specific region, it's going to be printed on the bottle. So instead of you know worrying about this particular Maison, you can say I, I like Cremant de Loire knowing that they're going to be, you know, a little bit different from, from bottle to bottle. You could have an all Chenin Blanc or a blend like this is. Uh, and that's kind of a, a good way to move forward. Okay, so that's that's an approach way if you go into a store and you say you'd want to try something from the Loire Valley and you can ask a reputable wine retailer. Yeah. They'll usually be able to point you in something in that direction. Yeah, and, you know, we've got some, we've got some great shops in town here. Mm, and, I mean, there's Shannon from California, Shannon from South Africa, Shannon from Australia. So, you know, there's actually going to be Shannon from the Finger Lakes at Bloomer Creek. They just planted some Shannon with Pascaline Le Peltier. Taos on Power Speed. Today's episode. All right, thank you, phone. So my phone... <laughs> the fall I- of Buddy Cianci. Well, that's what that's what you're doing. All right. So yeah, I have I have my phone connected to <laughs> phone connected to the system today. Uh, we're thinking about taking some phone calls in a little bit if people decide to call, and for whatever reason, it's auto playing my podcast. So um, thank you, phone. And <laughs> <laughs> let's go back into our uh, let's go back into our talk for a second. Um. So wow, that got me all shattered. So uh, we're talking. Regions, we're talking Chenin Blanc, we're talking Loire Valley, and why don't we talk about this specific wine a little bit more? Uh, flavor wise, I mean, you can go through any tasting yeah, notes and other things on that. Sure, just got to refill a little bit there. Yeah, I finished mine already, so <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Take us, take us through. So this is this is always a fun exercise. Drew said, you know what we should do is we should bring a couple of <laughs> bottles and blind taste them and just run the run the sommelier grid like in the documentary. <laughs> oh, yeah. I said yeah. that because of the coffee yeah. wine. I was yeah. going to get you on, but yeah, that's <laughs> that's that's mean. But um, what what's the point of doing that? I guess the the idea of of sommelier certification, the idea of you know kind of being so so rigorous, so so tedious with some of these uh, these tasks like uh, walking the, the the grid to describe um, color and then aroma and then uh, palate, both texture and flavors, is to really objectively quantify a wine, which, again, isn't the most sexy thing. And that's because, you know, we're we're the ones who do the legwork uh, so that other people can enjoy. And it's not to say that it's not enjoyable to 
you know, be tasting wine in the middle of the day, but it, it is another day at the office at a certain point. You kind of, you, it's, it's very technical. We're Absolutely. tasting, we're spitting, we're tasting, we're spitting. We're not sitting and enjoying a glass with our friends most of the time. And so that's weird in a sense, but that means that when it's showtime, when you're in and you're having a great dinner and you want to have a nice bottle, you know, we've, we've been through everything and we can, we can listen to what you like. We can see what you were already drinking, what you, what you consumed in front of us that you enjoyed. And we can steer that ship for you because we've gone through the tedium. Well, it's taking something seriously. I was talking about that last night. Uh, the wife and I were at a dinner. We were talking with people and it's taking things that may be fun, but taking them very seriously and trying to, you're trying to benefit everybody from that knowledge. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's uh, like we said, we want to make it as approachable as possible. And that's not walking up tableside and saying, hey, have you heard of our Cassitellisorexia? And do you want to talk about, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's genetic roots? It, it, no, I mean, nobody really cares about that. It, it helps us to get a sense of context to know those things. But yeah, like anything, it's all about uh, just knowledge and research and practice, practice, practice. Blind tasting is one of those things that people say, wow, I wish I could do that. Well, you can. It's a very... There it's, isn't, yeah, it's a learned skill, right? There isn't much variation between, you know, the the palate of one human to another, sure, the nose of one human to another. We're we're all pretty equipped with the same hardware when it comes to sensing these things. It's just a matter of, you know, really learning to do it. You know, you mentioned Christopher Bates. He yeah. leads, he leads a class for um, what's turned into like Western New York wine professionals about once a month at FLX Winery, and he's been invaluable in teaching us like so many great skills when it comes to identifying characteristics of wine and helping us work with those things as professionals it's not something that we want to you know teach everyone to do because i mean why would you really want to do that unless you're doing it for a living <laughs> but yeah it's it's yeah that rigor it can be critical to, to identifying some of the small things and it's a practice um anytime i try and taste something i do try and break it down i try to go back to a reference and if you have a starting point you can reference against something that's what i always do with food i try and pick a baseline something to base everything off of if it's pizza, if it's uh, you know Mexican food or coffee, coffee which I find pretty challenging as a tasting exercise. Yeah, um, I'm not very good at it, but I always try, and I think that's the thing when you're tasting, when you're cupping, when you're tasting wines, you can all you can do is say what you're tasting, and it'll change over time as you get more experience. But you're not wrong; it's just what you're experiencing at that time a lot of a lot of the time. Yeah, it's our job to interpret, right? Yeah, and the good thing about, you know, just doing it on a casual level like that is at its core, wine is a sensory experience. You know, you have sight, you know, it has texture when it's on your palate. Um, obviously, you know, it has taste and smell. So if you're not, you know, I'm not saying you have to go through and do a grid every time you taste a wine if you are just at home, but, you know, just put your nose in the glass for a few seconds, see what, you know, where it takes you, because that's the fun about wine. It can transport you. Yeah. And you don't get that unless you, you know, take a little time and just enjoy the wine all right so, it. so go ahead mr drew <laughs> all right so so a cremant basically means that the wine is made in the traditional champagne style um and so we're getting some creaminess on the nose i'll do the fruits first i guess some underripe peach green apple yeah nice Nice little bit. A little of apricot, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Some ripe melon. On the palate, there's you know pretty good mid palate texture. Pardon me. Um, obviously high acid, which you're gonna get with most sparkling wines. I like it because it has this sort of like round, 
creaminess to it, um, which is, you know, sometimes like if you're drinking like Prosecco or a cheap, you know, sparkling wine, it can just be very, very linear and kind of just like run right through your mouth. But this has it kind of it, it kind of lingers, lingers on lingers yeah. on your tongue a little bit, um, but it's not. It's not coating your mouth necessarily. It's not a heavy wine by any means. It's yeah, it's still clean. It still finishes crisp. You know, imagine this up against oysters or really yeah, a I mean, lot of one of the seafood. things. One of the things you hear in hospitality all the time is, you know, I don't like sweet wines. I only drink dry wines, or I I like wines that are are sweeter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. One is not necessarily better than the other, and this is, you know, we get so many people that are like, well, I don't drink those cheap sweet wines from the Finger Lakes. There's nothing. Nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, if that's if that's what you're into, if you like a little extra sugar on your palate, like great. But what we would always challenge is that uh, anything that has sweetness, a little bit of residual sugar, we want acid to balance it out. The acid cleans it up. Yeah, and ba- balance is one of those things that people, you know, they have one thing they picked out as the thing they can talk about with wine instead of talking about you know balance or talking about what are you pairing it against, and. Those are a lot more challenging to understand balance. Balance is often what we want, although sometimes we want brutally acidic and we want other things to pair against something. But what most people want is balance. They want this. They want just something that's going to be interesting but not super challenging in one way or another. Yeah, I mean, I think balance sort of equates to something just tasting good. I mean, it's not. Yeah. If it's out of balance with the alcohol, then it's too hot and you, you sense that. If there's too much acid, you sense that. Um, but if it's in harmony, then it's just you know a positive, taste good experience. Yeah, it's and uh, people can pick up on that regardless of how much knowledge you have of wine. You know, mm-hmm. wine making being similar to cooking in that respond in that respect. You you start with really high quality ingredients, you hope, and uh, then you just kind of manipulate things to to give that whole palate sensory experience from there. Nice. All right, so we got through our sparkling wine. So why don't we go into Mr. Grocky's history for a few minutes here? Sure. So I I first met you when you were at Char, and you were there for you were there for a little while, right? Yeah, I was there for uh, I was there for over uh, between two and three years. Yeah, yeah. and that was uh, that was a lot of fun. You know, the Strathallen Hotel, really busy place, and uh, we we had a good wine cellar there. Historically, that building has always just had a beautiful wine cellar. I mean, back in the day, it oh was, really? It was, I, I had no idea. It was uh, there was a, a guy named Michael Tadich that just had this this gorgeous, huge, huge wine cellar. So, uh, yeah, I mean, going going back a bit, I I came from the world of not anthropology but information technology. So I was a student at RIT, yeah, which is how I uh, how I made my way here. And I, uh, you know, after school, I always, you know, once once I got out of school, I I always had a hospitality job in in some sense. I would always be working with with food and beverage and. I kept it as part of what I did for so long before I finally made the realization that it was just time to switch into it full time. It's what, you know, like Drew said, it was kind of a spiritual awakening. You know, hospitality, I, I always say, you don't really choose it. It chooses you. You kind of you kind of get recruited into it. And then it's like the mob. It doesn't let you go. <laughs> <laughs> you think you're out, you're not out. Yeah. So, um, but no, it's really cool. Um I, I started with uh, corporate restaurants, helped open P.F. Chang's at Eastview Mall. and then, Beautiful. Yeah, that was uh, that. You was guys kind of had experience. like a legendary team to start out with, didn't you? 
We we absolutely did, and I've been people in like Michelin star restaurants now, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's gotten it's gotten kind of weird. And um, one of my one of my former colleagues who we taste with from PF Chang's just uh, he's in Aspen, Colorado right now, just got his uh, his first sort of certification for his sommelier, and that's awesome. You know, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have back in the day ever thought that was something that you know he would pursue. So good job, Nick. Uh, <laughs> uh, we've um. P.F. Chang's had a really cool wine program, and I think that's kind of how I ended up getting into wine more than anything else. I became one of the one of the in-house trainers, and somebody had to educate the new hires on the wine list there. Now, nobody in-house really knew that much at the time, but I was lucky enough to meet a couple of uh, distributor representatives back in the day. And uh, they kind of helped me learn a little bit more. In turn, I was able to help educate the staff, and things just built from there. So, I mean, I've I've had the pleasure of uh, opening a couple of successful restaurants. You know, um, I was on the opening team at Good Luck, and they are still absolutely one of the best experiences in the city. Uh, the wine program is is tight, but really good. I would say the same thing about Cure, their sister restaurant. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's yeah, it's not extensive, but you know what, if you're going to get something, it's yeah. going to be good. Yeah, and that's that's important for the region. I mean, I, I guess more on that dynamic in a little bit. But uh, yeah, I was I was made the wine director uh, after a little while, after uh, sommelier Joe Ellis uh, left to go pursue some other things. I was able to uh, take over the wine directorship there, and that was my first time really leading a wine program, which was really, really cool, and I enjoyed that. Um, I got to... I got to work with uh, Simone Boone, who owns Apogee, uh, as we redid the Erie Grill at the Del Monte Lodge. So oh, okay. that was that was a lot of fun. So we rebooted that restaurant. So when it reopened, uh, I was one of the food and beverage managers over there, which was really really cool. Uh, yeah, great great stuff all around. Nico, if you remember, you know, behind Jiva Theater. I remember when it existed, and I've been to the new version of things that was that's there now, but I, I never actually got to go there. Oh god. It was before I really dove in. It's one of the, it's one of those things that, you know, I, I I truly miss. It was a it was a great, great little experience. I think just because it had so much going under one roof. And it was a really unique concept because yeah, it, mean, was, it were, was like high end sushi and yeah. All sorts of crossover food yeah, as well. You know, uh, Jeremy Nuccelli, who's the head chef over at the Strathallen now, he actually uh, ran, you know, a, a great, you know, a new American culinary program there. Okay. And then there was, a, there was a, a full-on sushi program with a different chef under one roof. The cocktail program under Tony Riles was one of the most innovative things, you know, oh, I had ever seen. Yeah, he, I had no idea he, he was in Rochester for that. He opened, uh, he opened that place. Because he's, I mean, he's sort of infamous around Buffalo, uh, Buffalo for his... Cocktail prowess. He's kind of like a, he'll come in and start a beverage program now. He's one of those kind of guys. <laughs> Tony's uh, Tony something. Yeah, he does a he does a really cool job, and it was uh, it was an honor really to take over that beverage program from him. Yeah, because uh, it's one of those things that you you know when you see it, like that's a that's a challenge, and if you're able to execute it, it's really cool. So oh. that was you know more more fun there. I got to be kind of uh, right in the beginning at uh, Wegman's restaurant next door. Uh, bar and grill at the time, and I mean now it's. I mean, uh, right now one of my one of my favorite chefs in Rochester is uh, the head guy there, Paul Vroman. Um, Great guy. And I, I love going yeah. to visit that place. Paul is fantastic because he's 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 going to be changing. You know he's he's got such a unique take on things, mm-hmm. and his seasonality is so on point that I'm just makes me excited to go visit that place. Yeah. He's uh he's he's doing good work and as are so many people around the city. Now we're seeing uh, we're seeing people really kind of uh, catch on to a lot of different dining trends and really kind of uh, take into account all of the all of the local offerings, which you know should kind of be part of the standard experience. It should be standard, yeah. although we still 
I think right now we still have to talk about it. We still have to be, mm-hmm. we still have to be publicizing it because it's not standard yet for whatever reason. So I think it's, it still behooves all of us to talk about it and say, Hey, we're, we're serving local because we think it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And it ties into everything. We, we believe that pretty strongly, you know, Drew and I'll, I'll take a moment whenever we can to go down to the Finger Lakes and, and talk to some producers and taste some wines, uh, just, just as much as, as we're able really you want to you want to talk a little bit about the Finger Lakes and kind of how inclusive or not inclusive enough Rochester is with those particular wines. <laughs> that was yes. a that was a nice deep breath. <laughs> um, well, it's a little bit of a tricky question for us. Um, so you know, I went around France some years ago, and so I went through Burgundy and Champagne and the Rhone Valley, and when you go to restaurants there, if you look at their wine list, you know, uh, usually around eighty percent are regional wines. Um, and if you come to Rochester in this area, you know, the Finger Lakes is right next door. Um, but in terms of percentage of the wine list, you're seeing, you know, five to 10% being from the Finger Lakes. Um, and, you know, part of it is that the region was, you know, only in the recent past few years has it sort of gained a foothold and people have started recognizing it as a region that makes world-class wines. Um, but it's still largely underrepresented. Yeah, and I mean, it kind of it kind of seems right now that it gets more national press than it does local press. It does, especially in like New York City. Uh, I mean, if you go to Eleven Madison Park, Herman Weimer actually makes wine specifically for that restaurant, um, which is kind of you know, it's actually a lot easier to get Finger Lakes wines uh, in New York City than any other major city. Yeah, and um, it's it's you know, I've heard from from other producers on other publications. We're like, yeah, I don't, I don't, and I heard from other people in the wine business around here, like they don't bother to try and sell to Rochester. They go to New right, York, yeah, yeah. And we're we're forty five minutes to an hour away, and it's that's kind of depressing in a lot of ways to me. Which is a little backwards, yeah. This, uh, you know, this this wine movements in the Finger Lakes, you know, which has been around for fifty years plus, you know. It's- yeah, but I mean, the thing is, it's really within the last five years that they've started to, you know, across the board take wine seriously. Um, I mean, because before you saw a lot of hybrid grapes, a lot of native grapes like Concord, uh, things that just, you know, made really sort of sweet, cloying wines that people just don't like. Um, but within the last five years or so, the winemakers I've talked to said that largely they've uprooted all of their old hybrid and native grapes and planted vinifera Um And, you know, the region as a whole, if you're talking about it being only 50 years old, if you go to someplace like Germany or France, they've been making wine for 2,000 years. Um, so... You know, imagine having 2,000 years of experience against 50 years of experience. So they're still figuring things out. Right. In and another 1,950 years, the wines are going to be Well, hopefully not that better. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, but you do have a handful of producers who are really sort of taking things to the next level, like Herman Weimer, um, Johannes at Kemeter, Boundary Breaks is doing some great stuff. And, um, you know, it's sort of on us to not only represent the top tier producers, but sort of you know, the second wave of people as well. But that's where it gets tricky because when you only have so much room on a list that you want to showcase the entire world of wine, you know, it doesn't necessarily leave a ton of space to do that. Um, I'm, I'm kind of, I think we're at a good space on our list in terms of Finger Lakes representation. Yeah, we're going to make the effort and we're going to continue to grow that too because uh, we we strongly believe that it should be part of a responsible beverage program here. I think it's kind of critical. And like I said, it's, there, there's people that really push that. Um, you know, someone like a, like Michael Warren Thomas is a great example of somebody who's 
who's uh, he's an activist almost when it comes he's to... He's called everybody out, and he has said, you are not doing enough locally with this beautiful wine region absolutely. that's literally in the backyard. Yeah. And I, I agree. He's made I, the point very strongly, absolutely. and you know, it's, it's on us. I, I really respect that because he's taken it as a personal, a personal affront almost, and... You know, I, maybe I don't treat it as harshly, obviously, as he does, but I, I pay attention to it now. I notice it when I go into a restaurant. And if you can't find a place for anything from the Finger Lakes or one or two, I mean, you're really not trying because there's there's no almost no reason not to find something. There is something that you can serve on your menu from the Finger Lakes that you can get on a regular basis. The... the uh the evangelization needs to start with us and the embracing of it kind of needs to, to go to the whole region. We really want everyone to be super proud of what's coming out of the area. One of the, the biggest things the owner of our new restaurant has said is, you know, I want this town to be incredibly proud of what we're, we're building. It's, it's very important, you know. I, I have, I've come in here and I'm embracing the, the history and the culture of this space and I, I want this town to be proud. I want everyone that drinks wine in the Finger Lakes to be really proud of the incredibly hard work that's being done. Absolutely. One, as you said, I mean, people have done all this work to change the per- uh, the perception of what the Finger Lakes is. Yeah, and that's no small feat. It, no. To, to say that in the last five years, you know, that much has changed is uh, people have been working hard, obviously. Yeah. And there, there's been the, you know, the people, the pioneers who've been doing it for a while. But, I mean, in those last years, you can, now you can drive down Seneca and you can go to places where, you feel good about visiting five, six, seven, eight, ten places in a row. And you can say, oh, wow, they're trying to do something interesting. They're trying to make a great product. And some are focused, you know, more on bringing more people in. Some are focused on eccentric and wines with interesting and different character. But you can drive and get all these different perspectives. But they're perspectives you can respect at the same time. It's not just, oh, this place is doing garbage and this place is doing a fine. They have different perspectives on what what they should be doing, which uh, that's the part I find interesting. And we, t- we tend to paint with a really broad brush as consumers in the area. Yeah, this this is a good producer. This is not a good producer. You know, you can't pigeonhole. There, yeah. there are great wines that come out of some unlikely places, just as there are some, you know, some kind of throwaway table wines that come out of some great places. I mean, it's about keeping an open mind. And at least in my experience, you know, any sort of roadblock or doubt that I had about anything in the world of wine has just been smashed. Um, I mean, like I said, I've been into wine for, you know, about three years now. Um, and you know, I, when I first started, I was drinking, you know, all French Bordeaux and Burgundies, things that, you know, have this incredible reputation. And when someone would say, you want to go to the Finger Lakes, I'd be like, hey, no, it's New York. They can't make good wine there. And that was absolutely the wrong mindset to have. Um, but you know, eventually I started going out to these places. I don't, you know, I didn't even like white wine at that point. And then someone had put this Riesling in front of me and, and, you know, over time I discovered not only did I like it, it was one of my favorite things in the world. And not only does New York state make good wines, they can make great wines. Let's talk about Riesling then for a few minutes. since obviously <laughs> it's a passion. Um, yeah, and I get this question all the time, like, what, what's it with you and Riesling? Why are you so excited? Right? Yeah. 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 Actually, maybe we should pour this Riesling, and then we can kind of talk about that. I, I poured you it. poured it already. Yeah. Okay, well, let's pass that to Chris. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, the easiest way of saying it is that Riesling, for me, is just the most delicious wine out there. I mean, it's got incredible fruit. It's got 
incredible aromatics, you know, florals. It's got great minerality and drive. Um, and it has, you know, at least I would argue it has the most ability to sort of transport you somewhere else. I mean, it has just layers upon layers upon layers. And I can just lose myself in a glass for hours at a time. Specifically this one, if you, uh, this is the 1990 J.B. Becker Wallufer Bergbildstrom Spätlese Trocken. That's, that's a lot of German right there. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, <laughs> this is the problem this is with this thing. Yeah, now, yeah, we we we've had this discussion in in many forums. Drew and I uh, had the pleasure <laughs> of going to going to New York City and and meeting with some some beverage directors and sommeliers at this uh, festival called Riesling Fire that's put on. Fire. Yeah. Yeah. See now it. you now you got to do your your German tongue swallows. Yes. Yeah, that's is good. Uh, <laughs> we uh you know and the, the conversation always comes up how do you how do you make these wines more relatable when there's you know 18 words in the title of the wine that So are... many consonants. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so many yeah. consonants. So that's I, I that's where our And that's our... something I don't think we've really figured out yet in terms of the whole wine community. Uh it's just for I th- the first thing you have to do is get people excited about Riesling because it still has this reputation from you know 1970s Germany of being just you know very overly sweet and uninteresting. One dimensional, yeah. One dimensional, yeah. And that's a, not to say there's anything wrong with these styles. You know, we're talking in terms of of quality here. Right. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's uh, wine runs a, a huge spectrum, right? So it's going to get you drunk regardless. It's just a matter of how much you're going to enjoy it in the meantime. Well, and I think this. I mean, this is a fascinating example because if you so if you drive down, like I said, Seneca Lake, and you go to well, what you'd get in our, our dry Riesling realm, you're getting bright, high acidity, some minerality, you're getting stone fruits, you're getting all of these. And it's it's kind of one one vision, and I look at this, and it is completely different in so many different ways from Well, I mean, and here's the thing about that, too, is this is a wine that's 27 years old. Right. Um, and you don't see a lot of 27-year-old Rieslings from the Finger Lakes, although... Me and Chris actually did have a chance to have one from Chateau Lafayette Renault from 1989, and this is actually a very life changing experience for us. It's it's actually it's a funny story. Um, you know, I, people know I love Riesling and that I'm a big proponent of Finger Lakes Riesling. Um, so someone actually gave me this old bottle, this 1989 Chateau Lafayette Renault, which was had, beat up. Yeah, like the the label was half ripped off. The oolage was way down. It was basically brown as dirt. <laughs> And it had been stored in someone's kitchen in like, you know, 90 degree heat all summer for literally 27, 28 years. And it was, you know, I thought it was really cool that someone had this bottle and I never expected to drink it because there's no way that was going to be good. So fast forward, you know, six or seven months of it just sitting in my kitchen in 90 degree weather. Uh, Chris would come over. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's one of those things, you know, after six or seven bottles into the night, we're kind of thinking, what can we open next? And I was like, well, you know, what the heck? Let's just see what happens with this wine. And it, it was completely intact. It was yeah, a it was... beautiful sensory experience. The acid had just integrated into the wine. It had this, this, this almost sublimation off of your tongue. It just kind of hovered right above your palate and just went through these these layers of ripe and overripe and and desiccated fruits and just and then it, it took on those like you know the qualities that we're gonna get a little bit of in this wine, but those you know secondary like nutty and caramelized aromas and it was just really profound and shocking to us because it was the first time we sort of like stopped to think that Finger Lakes can make ageable wine, ageable Riesling. Yeah, and I think that's that's something that you kind of hope that some of the legacy producers have stored some of that. Yeah. 
you know, maybe in better conditions too, because I mean, who's to say that? that <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine that wine if it had been stored, you know, in an actual cellar for all of those years. Yeah. You know. When you think maybe someone like you know maybe Dr. Frank had stored stuff. I mean, who knows? I and I think they have stored some. Was it uh, Evan Dawson and Summer in the Glass who wrote that he had like a 1966 Dr. Frank's at some restaurant and it was still holding up pretty well? I mean, that sounds one I haven't read it yet, and I really need to. You should definitely read that because I, I want I want to have him over and I want to talk specifically about that. And I know if I have him over and I don't read the damn book, I'm going to be embarrassed <laughs> because he reads everything. It's a page turner. It really is. Okay. Like uh, he he did a great job putting it together, and it's told uh, as a as a narrative about certain winemakers in the Finger Lakes. And right. so you feel like you know these guys already after you read the book. And yeah. so then when I interact with them, you know, I'm, I'm like, I I don't know, you fanboy a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's the thing. If you're going to have people over and talk about stuff like that specifically, you got to read the damn book. And one. It helps when I have people who can tell stories, and if I have you guys over, I have guidelines of where I'm going to. I have ideas <laughs> of where the conversation's going, and then we kind of let everything else fall where it will, but if somebody wrote a book, you should read the damn book. Um, it's an easy read, seriously. Awesome. Yeah. I'm excited about it. If you have a nice day to sit in a lawn chair and you know read it right now. With I a mean, glass of Riesling. You have to do it with a glass of Riesling. That's Sounds fantastic. So let's talk about this one in front of us. I mean, one, the color is darker than most you'll see around here. So this is what happens as uh, as white wine ages. You know, we say all wine ends up the same color if you let it go long enough. It all ends up brown. <laughs> so it starts to take on yeah, that 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 tan deep gold. I mean, this is still parts. yeah, this is a nice gold color still. Yep. It. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's not it's not a light, you know, not uh, it's not a light gold. It's a rich, it's a rich straw gold. You know, it's. Very pleasant looking. For 27 years old, it's actually still very bright color-wise, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not brown. Right. Um, and I mean, the nose on this is just... It's a shame to actually talk about this on air because, without <laughs> being able to experience it because yeah. it's just... Just give us a call. We'll send a bottle to your house. <laughs> 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 if only we could, but uh, yeah, Hans-Josef Becker, this is guy is uh, kind of a rock star in the Rhine go. One of my heroes. Um <laughs> Who actually got to meet when we were in New York City, and I may have scared him a bit by stalking him for two days straight. Well, I mean, you are tall, so that might have been part of it. (laughs) I think it was more the uh, trying to take selfies with him in the background and (laughs) post them on Snapchat. That was which I did successfully, (laughs) and I'm I'm sure Mr. Becker is a huge fan of Snapchat. Yeah, (laughs) it's hard to tell what he's a fan of. He's very uh. So the joke is, you're saying he's German. He's German, yes. But I actually did get to meet him, and he agreed to take a picture with me and his daughter, I think. But yes, you're, you like, mean your future wife, as you my future uh, keep wife, yes. To her? <laughs> I apologize I'm to your girlfriend, right? Now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, he's just you know he's one of my heroes just because you know as we mentioned earlier, Germany has this reputation of doing these you know sweet wines, and so he's from the Rheingau, and. Which I'm assuming is a region. It's in yeah, Germany. it's one of the regions in Germany. Um, but he was sort of one of the first people to say, I mean, German wines used to be pretty much all dry back in the 1800s, early 1900s, until they sort of met that post World War II economic downturn, and then they had to you know just sell wine to make money, and so they had to sweeten it up and make these the dark ages, as I call it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Hans Joseph was. <clears throat> He kind of just said to hell with tradition, you know, I, I think I'm not happy with these wines. I think they should be, you know, super dry. I'm going to leave them on their lees. I'm going to put them in large oak barrels. I'm going to use indigenous yeasts. And that's the way I think wine should be made. 
and you know they kind of wanted to burn him as a witch. Um, and you would describe that as the if that's a natural. It's more of a natural process wine. Uh, a bit. Um, some yes, some no. Some yeah. All right. So I mean, yeah. this seems like a it, basically yeah. it was a break from tradition, and you know okay. Germans love their tradition. Um, so he was one of the first people to kind of want to move Germany, the German wine industry, into the the next phase. Yeah, the the gentleman at Kindred Fair uh, did a did a tasting with uh, his wines over the years uh, a few months back, and they did a very nice job of uh, leading us through a couple of things. Uh, some of the tasting notes, you know, talked about his life a little bit where he just, uh, he was inspired by, by dry wine makers in other parts of the country and other parts of the world. And so basically, yeah, said to hell with this in the 1970s and started making these trokin wines, these very, very dry style Rieslings. Now this doesn't have any residual sugar as, as you, know, <laughs> you may have you noticed. Know, yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It is tart, right? It so, is, but it's not it's not as bracingly acidic because that probably dulls over time, right? It's not striking on the palate. It's not sharply acidic, but you know it has it's a rounded acidity now versus maybe when it was originally bottled. Yeah, the word that we like to use is you know how it, how acid integrates over time. It doesn't go away, and that improves the ageability of a wine, right? Because it mm. slows down mm. those organic chemical reactions a little bit, and it it allows certain things to happen, but not the complete degradation of the wine. So mm. that's kind of technically why why it stands up and why Riesling can age, why uh, the oldest uh, still consumable bottles of wine in the world are Riesling-based. And um, But the Becker wines are actually really known for their high acid. And um, if you notice the cork, I know you can't see it if you're listening, but it's sort of burned black in the middle. And um, Yeah, absolutely. It's, actually, it's kind of interesting. It almost looks like it was charred. Yeah. yeah, it looks like it got hit by lightning. And so when we were down in New York City and we we're actually talking to Hans Joseph and he said they actually had to switch to glass stoppers because the acid levels in the Riesling were burning through the corks and just charring mm-hmm. them. And he like gave us this old example where it was 10 times worse than this. It was just, in, you know, looked like a burnt timber. <laughs> and I mean, I know you guys are saying the acid's in balance. I'm over here drilling all down my shirt, but <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. And you just, you, you get a lot of character here, but it's not fresh fruit. It's, uh, it's just really kind of tart. And and dry. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, for me, the, this wine is about the nose, and it just—I don't even know how to describe it. Really, it just takes you to a different place. That you know, there's—you do have like, these really overripe, desiccated, like apricot and peach and nectarine. You get this like really, almost like decaying white lily. Oh, see, that's super specific. And but <laughs> I think, but I think that's a great. It's also a great time to step back and say when people say you're getting desiccated, you're getting these aromas. It's not a bad thing. There can be aromas that sound on their front like they are bad, for a tennis ball uh, or other things like yeah, that. Yeah, was that? And it's it's a very specific aroma. It's, yeah, it's just a, a specific note. It kind of it, it helps it helps us kind of zero into you know where we are and uh, those those qualities that are associated with a certain region. And those are the things you either dial into or that repel you. You know, yeah. maybe maybe you don't like Claire Valley Riesling because it has that freshly opened can of tennis balls, as Ian Cobble called it in yes. some. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I mean, yeah, something like this. I mean, we're talking. You're talking. You have the Rheingau region. Is this something where you would look for something from the region still, or would you want to say? Yeah, hey, I mean, the two something? big regions that you want to look for recently in Germany are the Mosul and the Rheingau. Um, I think Mosul is definitely a little bit more on the sweeter end. Um, 
same thing, like high acid. Their fruits are a little bit more stone fruity. Uh, Rheingel has, you know, flatter slopes, so they get more sunshine, uh, a little bit higher ripeness. So you get more tropical fruits, and they tend to do more dry styles. Gotcha. But, yeah, those are the two big regions for Riesling mm. in Germany. Mm. Um, I'm kind of interested to see what you think about this wine. I mean, I like it a lot just because it is different, and I like the acidity. Um, and it's weird when you when you mention the fruits, it's almost got this, and I had something recently as a food that was, it was rehydrated dried fruit in an acidic dressing or an acidic marinade. So it carried some of those like dried fruit flavors, that concentration, but it didn't taste sweet at all. Mm. In a lot of ways, it kind of reminds me of that in that it still has that acidity, but it's integrated with these dried flavors that they're kind of concentrated. Mm-hmm. It's not like fresh fruit anymore. It's it's that some of those dried fruit aromas versus maybe fresh fruit. Yeah, it's 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 cool texturally. There's like this rehydrated white cranberry. To to what you're what you're talking about <laughs> that that little bit of like just light tannin on the. I was tongue, almost thinking that, like that drying sensation. You know when you get like dried peaches sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where it concentrates the acid and it's it's not it tastes almost nothing like a fresh a fresh peach. So you get those dark, some of those darker flavors because you get darker flavors in this versus a, it's not as juicy necessarily, but it's those darker, some of those darker flavors involved. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I was getting is that, but it still maintains some of that, like you said, that integrated acidity in there. That's the part that's interesting to me is it's darker without being a, it's not like monotonous in yeah. that way. And we, uh, we really want people to, to try these kind of weird things that really kind of push the ends of your experience with wine and help define your center a little bit better when you're, you're really tasting things that are weird. Because if you like this, now we know we can go in the direction of, you know, high acid and, and those kind of weird desiccated flavors. You know, this, yeah. is, this is not in, in kind of the mainstream palate, right? So I wouldn't think so, but it's, it offers something interesting. And if you talk about it and if you can describe it, if you can try and taste something... And that's where you can contrast somebody, you know, a, a trained sommelier can tell you, hey, or tried in a tried in a flight, you try a, a bright, fresh Riesling that's hasn't been aged for twenty five or thirty years, and you can try this and say, oh wow, this is the contrast. This is what you get because of the aging, or this is what you get because of the region. And that's where I think you can find some interest in people mm-hmm. and say, hey, this is this is what this wine can be in different areas or in different places. Mm-hmm. And yeah, which is that's just. Cool kind of getting back to us creating the dialogue, which is what we want to do. Um, and this is, you know, this is kind of a good jumping off point because I think the best wines coming out of the Finger Lakes are the dry Rieslings. Um, so that would be a good comparison to see, you know, this is possibly where they could be in 20 to 30 years. Very cool. All right, we're going we're gonna to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and uh, taste, our, taste our last wine and do a little bit more babbling. So we'll be back in a second. Hey everyone, I want to take a second to talk about a new project I'm part of that I'm really excited about called Frankly. Frankly is trying to bring transparency to food sourcing for restaurateurs, farms, and people that produce specialty goods. We want to make it easy to know that people are doing things the right way and to make it easy for people to find the places that are doing things the right way so you can grow your business because you care about what you're doing. If you have any interest in this product or just want to know more about it, you can email me S-T-R-O-M-I-E at P-H-R-A-N-K dot L-Y or check out the website, frankly, P-H-R-A-N-K dot L-Y. 
All right, so we're, we're starting back up again. Uh, my wife, my fantastic wife, Carrie, has joined us. <laughs> and because she has a uh, very interesting natural palate, better than mine, and she's getting a lot of interesting tasting notes on this 1990 Riesling that we're tasting. Um, so, and this is the J.B. Becker from the Rheingau region of Germany, since I'm reading the label from across the table. <laughs> uh, so, Carrie, why don't you throw a couple of those interesting things you were tasting? So, I was definitely picking up on uh, when you accidentally over eagerly chomp through basically a nectarine pit um, and you're like, oh, this is a delici- delicious nectarine. And then all of a sudden you get this horrible, bitter, tangy, I'm, I regret everything kind of moment <laughs> so because did you, you like it? actually <laughs> cracked into the pit and now you have like bits of pit in your mouth and you like see oh there's like a little seed inside of here but i never want to see that again because that means that i just destroyed my mouth but i got a little bit of that both in taste and and scent uh, but I also was like, I kept on sipping and sniffing and sipping and sniffing and eventually uh, kind of picked up what I could best describe as the filter specific portion of a spent cigarette butt. And that actually brought up something when she said <laughs> that to these guys, which that that's the part I find interesting. <laughs> well, it's kind of, uh, I, I associate that with kind of a, a chemical-y smell, you know, with a uh, little, you know, notes of notes of tobacco thrown in, obviously. Yeah. But that, that chemical-y smell, uh, we associate with Riesling in a specific uh, compound usually. So we'll talk that tennis ball thing that you brought up earlier, right? right? Like that's a manifestation of it. People say kerosene or petrol, fuel oil. Right. Uh, that's uh, it, It's kind of a, a specific ester, a volatile one that, uh, you know, is controversial in the wine world. Should it be there? Should it not be there? In what proportion should it be there? Is it a result of bad handling of grapes? Is it a result right. of uh, not enough winemaking, too much winemaking? Drew has no opinion on this, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Yes, this is a this is a very sore subject for me actually. Um, so essentially, the the compound he's talking about is two two one trimethyl dihydronephaline, um, TDN for short. See, and this is the kind of stuff that really you know no one. I won't say this to table side. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so how this actually comes about in the grape, it's not just riesling, but you know a lot of like Chardonnay will have this a little bit too. Um, but the sun exposure is really what causes this phenomenon. Um, but basically it's a chemical precursor that occurs during acid hydrolysis that produces this biochemical compound that smells like petrol. <laughs> um, and sorry for being such a nerd, but actually I want to go a little nerdier. Is it from the heat exposure or the UV light exposure from the sun? That's a great question. Uh, I'm my understanding is that it's from the UV exposure of the sun, but I'm also not a biochemist, so don't take my word on that. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when you get sun exposure, what you're really talking about is ripeness. Right. And when you get ripeness, you get these, like, really gorgeous fruits that come along with it. And, you know, uh, something that you kind of get in the finger lakes, too, is this underripe quality because, obviously, we have such a marginal climate. And, you know... Less marginal every year. Right. That's well, true, that's though. true. That's yeah. a whole nother conversation. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's actually one of those things that we're getting some of these big dry summers and it's changing some of the things we can do here, which is good in some ways, maybe good for some of the winemaking, but maybe not so good for the levels of the lake and other things around us. Right. Yeah. If you, talk, a, you talk to Figure Lake producers about, you know, 2016, you want to talk about, a, you know, a hot, dry summer, uh, you know, they'll have varying opinions. They'll say quality is great, but uh, yield was 
down. That's the well, general consensus. And it was exceedingly wet in the, the springtime, right. if I remember correctly. So that, that hindered strawberry growth, for example. Um, and also, I think we may have had... Tree fruit, too, right? A, ru- yeah. a really yeah. rough late frost i think also happened which annihilated some of the the and we're getting we got that we got that this year as well Mm -hmm. we had a big wet spring we had a late you know a late uh wind we had some warm in the winter where we got some blossoms we got a late frost and killed a lot of that stuff happening and that can happen with the wine grapes too i mean when it's warm like that they'll start to have bud break and then when the frost comes over they kill the vines so it's Mm. always a challenge yeah, anything that's budded when it's frozen, you you lose those buds. Like you're you're not yeah. getting any yeah, fruit off it. of that. Yeah. Right. They they're not they're not recovering that right. season. That's that's right. it. That's right. what you got. Yeah. It might might not kill the vine entirely, but yeah, you've you've kind of lost a, a good amount of your crop at that portion. Which is why uh, you know, Oscar and Fred over at, at Veemer, they've installed these huge wind turbines in their their vineyards. Um, Oscar has a great story about how the first time that they kicked on <laughs> that um, multiple people called 911 instead oh. of plane had crashed. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's uh, fantastic. They, they, they generate apparently a, a, a good amount of jet engine noise. Uh, nice. But wow. yeah. That's uh, it. You know, designed to. That's just designed to. Uh, the cold air settles down on the base of the vines, and they're trying to, you know, keep any <laughs> potential damage from huh. from happening. And that that few degree variation can be all the difference. That's that fascinating. Can, that can be, you know, tens of thousands of dollars right. to Absolutely. a winemaker. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, we're all. I mean, all, I know all the farmers and creators are kind of riding this, riding the change in our uh, change in our local weathering patterns. And they're all kind of trying to adapt as it goes on with no real idea where it's going. Yeah. The, other than probably hotter. Yeah. The the consensus right now is it's just it's it's screwy, right? It's un it's more unpredictable than usual. And that right. seems to be the the pattern throughout most of the, the winemaking world right now. You know, the I mean, talk about Chablis, talk about champagne, you know, they they've been seeing kind of variations in stormy weather, et cetera, <laughs> et cetera. You know, Chablis. Yeah, I mean in Beaujolais this year there's some producers who couldn't even make wine because everything got destroyed by weather. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, and that's, I mean, that's a region that is fairly well known. And now you're, I mean, it's probably a pretty big part of their economy as well. So you're losing, you're losing history. You're losing a vintage almost, um, which kind of distressing. Yeah. yeah. And, Good, uh, good producers will be able to compensate for weather variation most of the time, except when it's catastrophic like that, right? But that's why that's why we say explore a region that you like, like we were talking about earlier. Right. But then pick the producers in that you uh, <coughs> that you can trust as well, because right, good like producers, Drew's, yeah, like yeah. Drew's a huge fan of the Beckers, right? Um, oh, but if if you don't see that in a store, that doesn't mean you shouldn't try something else from the Rheingau region of Germany. Yeah, you know, this one's going to be very different than than most things that are associated typically with that particular region. Uh, you know, but that's the that's the beauty of it. There there is no black and white, and you can't really paint with a broad brush when it comes to wine. Although you can, right? <laughs> so it's like a, a Leonard Oaks versus any other region or any other producer in the Finger Lakes region. They have a different kind of quality to them, even though it might they might make the same kind of grape and these in the same region yeah but well, they, same area they, of new york yeah they focus on a completely different kind of experience right yeah from the niagara i mean from you know an hour and a half away from niagara to finger lakes you're going to get a different product mm-hmm. uh which is kind of interesting in of itself it's actually sorry it's interesting you said that because uh we've actually had a lot of conversation within the last couple months about wines from niagara um because you know 
Toronto is actually in some cases closer than the Finger Lakes for us um, and the whole Niagara Escarpment wine region. But you don't see a lot of Canadian wines in this market. Right. Um, and I was actually fortunate enough to uh, taste with Thomas Bachelder, uh, who does some phenomenal Chardonnays and Pinots um, and the Niagara Escarpment a couple months ago. And I, we were talking about it. I was like, yeah, I mean, as much as we want to represent the Finger Lakes, yeah. Niagara Escarpment's a local region for us as well, you know, regardless of international border. Um, but they have an incredibly different climate because of the escarpment. It really blocks all that cold weather that affects us. Mm -hmm. And so they get this incredible ripeness and, thank you, uh, they get more sun exposure. So their Pinots and Charnays actually can be very, very, very good, even better than the Finger Lakes. Wow. Um, but yeah, it's just something that we want to... We don't talk that much about Canadian wine. And right, so and we want to change that conversation yeah. as well. That's still kind of local for us. It is. I mean, that's really Toronto from, from Rochester is three hours away. Yeah. And that's only because we have to go around a lake. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine if we had some amazing some amazing vehicle that we could ride on a boat from here to Toronto. Yeah. We call it like, the maybe a, maybe a, a boat, a ferry. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Imagine, imagine how awesome that would be. And how Especially many people if it would were take fast. It. Well, yeah. Try again at some point. Yeah. <laughs> so depressing. But regardless, it's, it is only three hours, too. And it's something we need to still understand from a culinary perspective as well. We have a three-hour drive to a major international city. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is not, I mean, you can say what you will about, you know, Pittsburgh or other cities that are doing great things culinarily, but Toronto is a major international city that's only three hours away. It's closer than Pittsburgh. It's closer than Boston. It's closer than New York City. And it has so much diversity of culture and of food and drink. And they're a trendsetter in a lot of ways, and we forget that they are our closest major city to here. Toronto's done a good job of representing their quote-unquote local wine scene for a while. Uh, there's, you know, excise taxes, etc., that make it a little more <coughs> pricey for us to represent these things. It also makes it difficult for a lot of Canadian wineries, the smaller ones, to export, set up distribution channels, even, you know, across the, the small border to the United States, which is, you know, kind of crazy, but it's true. Yeah. Um, not to say that there aren't more and more that are trying right now. The laws have gotten a little bit uh, easier, I think, on the Canadian side. Uh, so... We're, uh, we're, we're picking up some things, for sure. Back Elder has uh, made an appearance on our wine list, for sure. Very cool. So while we were, while we were discussing some different, different regions, um, Chris poured our, poured our last wine we're tasting, at least for the time being. Uh, why don't we talk a little bit about this one? Seems like Drew's pushing the limits a little bit. Well, we're gonna here. Let me <laughs> let me intro this just for a second. So I, I think Drew's, you should because I took a sip and I think we need to intro this. I'm gonna I'm gonna let Drew go. Just you know, you're <laughs> off the leash on this one. But uh, just to to introduce, this is a Georgian wine, not the not the state, but the nation state. Uh, Georgia actually has uh, provided us with some interesting varietals to grow here in the Finger Lakes. And uh, this is an Arcazzatelli that we're about to try here. Dr. Frank has been working with Arcazzatelli for uh, some time. What's, what are you saying? It's, it's a blend. Arcazzatelli meets fun. Oh, okay. Oh. Uh, so primarily Arcazzatelli, I'm guessing. I don't know the specifics about this wine. But Drew's a, Drew's a big believer in uh, natural wine. Now, that is, that is a, a bag of snakes when it comes yes. to uh, so a conversation. Basics, basics on the snakes. So natural means non-interventionalist for the most part, 
but natural doesn't necessarily mean better. And it's important to understand that modern manipulation and winemaking techniques were invented to correct problems. And also bring from, consistency yes, to a product. Yes. So uh, to say that natural wines are inherently better, just like organic produce is inherently better, uh, it's 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 better perhaps to respect what the earth provides us and to uh, meddle with it as little as possible this is kind of a this is kind of the fundamental difference between uh you know like a new world american winemaking and european winemaking european winemaking focuses on the region it focuses on the tradition the things that have been growing and cultivated and made into wine elevated there for years and years americans are all about what can what can we change what can we do to make this better what kind of french oak barrel and how much toast can i put on it to make this cabernet just so much much rounder in the mouth instead mm -hmm. of trying to represent the Cabernet that comes out of the ground in its purest form. Same thing with Chardonnay in particular, right? Yeah. So natural wines are a topic of hot discussion, uh, but they represent a simpler philosophy and one that's closer to the earth. And when done well, can really kind of uh, engage you in a philosophy. There's a lot in a glass, right? We're talking right. about vintages, like whole whole years reduced into a glass of wine. We're talking about producers, a whole career reduced into a glass of wine. <laughs> and natural wines are, are taking a, a life philosophy and kind of applying it to that glass of wine. So this is uh, a topic that we're exploring and we will continue to explore. And uh, you want to take it away with our, our, our Cazzatelli? I do. Spain, um, <clears throat> Chris and I don't necessarily agree on the proponents of natural wine. Um, and natural wine is actually something that doesn't really have a broad definition. It means different things to different people. Um, so, I, you know, as I've, like I said, I've been in the wine for three years and it's been a constant evolution. Um, so, you know, maybe next year I'll hate Corby wine. I don't really know. But <laughs> as of right now, um, you know, I started getting into natural wine. Um, not so much based on the merits of the winemaking, but just because I found that natural wine tended to be more interesting and have more complexity and provide a more interesting experience when you pair it with food and serve in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. um, but then, I mean, and I think now more than ever, it's important to think of the environment. And so beyond natural wine, I'm more interested in sustainable wine. Um, so these are vineyards that are run in a way that doesn't affect the environment in a negative way it creates a natural ecosystem that's balanced and will take care of itself. Yeah. Um, so, you know, whether that's, you know, there's some, some wineries in like Slovakia or Georgia where they have, you know, everything's done by a horse and the horse manure will be, you know, used to grow the vines and they have pigs to come up and eat, you know, the grass that is growing from that. And it's just this whole sustainable ecosystem. You know, yeah. Ecosystem. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, obviously I think that's important for the environment, um, and especially, you know, in light of recent events, more so than ever. Yeah. But without going into the politics of that, I don't want to touch that yeah. right now. Um, <laughs> but, you know, what it does in terms of the wine is when you have, like, if you just spray everything with pesticides and irradiate the soil, you know, it's you have just blandness in the soil. So the vines aren't getting all these different biochemical compounds. Mm -hmm. um, but in a sustainable vineyard, you do. You get incredible soil diversity, and that's translated up through the vines into the grapes. And it causes different biochemical reactions in the grapes, which in turn, when you turn it into wine, give you all these different flavor compl complexities and aromas. And that's kind of where I got into it because I want to provide, you know, a more interesting experience and something that, you know, like, why are you going to drive out to Leroy just, you know, to drink a Cabernet and have a steak? Well, let's, because you know, of the gorgeous view and the wonderful food? That's you. Oh, right. see, so look at that. <laughs> Farmer's Creek Side Tavern in <laughs> Main Street, Leroy. 
Um, but at least on my end, where I'm coming from, is you know, I want to try to provide a very unique, interesting experience and create that dialogue that maybe someone hasn't thought of before. Um, well, and I mean, I think that brings us to what we have in our glass right now. And when you're talking about complicated, you're talking about different, you're talking about, I want to use the term eccentric. This is that. This is not a... This is not an introductory wine. This is complicated from nose to palate. Um, it's complicated and challenging, and I find it fascinating. Uh-oh. I have so many things I want to say. <laughs> so, us, yes. Because so I've been sniffing this for a while, and every time I, I smell, I, I pick something else up. So at the I'm be- with you on that. At yeah. the very beginning, bran- brandy was what I got. I got brandy, and then I got uh, sweet corn, then it started to turn into um, adhesive of the back of like stickers, <laughs> and then it turned yes. into um, fermented pear and uh, Ziploc bags. And I think I, on my last sniff, I just got grape soda. It's okay, all of those things to me. Right so, now. so for me, wow. I mean, grape soda totally. This is a white wine, by the way, that we're drinking. Uh-huh. <laughs> Maybe I should introduce it's Clubber wine. Very yeah. golden. It's, it's technically an amber wine. That's what right. that's what it's called. Yeah. Um, so please. Yeah, let me give a little background on this because I think it's important. Um, so, like, one of the reasons I really got into these wines from Georgia uh, is because as I started to get into the natural wine phase and all the, you know, philosophical components behind that, I kind of had this idea. And I was actually, I was working with another chef, uh, Sean O'Donnell from next door in Flower City Food Corps. Love Sean. I mean, he's, he's, a, uh, he's a challenging person. Um, Friend but of the show, right? Absolutely. Sean's one. He's, he, I love the fact that he's doing interesting things. So if you're into food, keep an eye out for Sean doing pop-ups around town and trying different things. He's always experimenting and mm-hmm. really just a really interesting guy that I'm excited to see what he comes up with next. Well, we are too. And um, I was fortunate enough to be able to work with him in next door. Um, and I knew he was into the whole like foraging foods thing. And, and even more so now, I, I love watching his Instagram and yeah. checking out what he's finding. Um. So on my end, I was kind of, you know, I was just getting into natural wines and I was kind of thinking like how those would interplay. So basically what I wanted to do is I was thinking about the history of wine and I wanted to sort of recreate the experience that the first person in if, in humanity to ever try wine would have. Um, and you're going back ten to 13,000 years ago into the Neolithic age. And, um, you know, like every, every you know, if we you come home. the first segment, Drew's an anthropologist. <laughs> <Right>. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, you know, for us, like, we have a hard day at work. We want to come home and have a glass of wine. Imagine 10,000 years ago, like, every moment is a life-and-death situation for you, basically. Um, And then all of a sudden, you know, you pick these grapes, you put them in a basket, and they happen to crush each other, and it spontaneously ferments. And so the first person to kind of say, well, let's, you know, we don't want to waste that. Let's drink it. And, you know, it's like, well, this is, like, what kind of experience would that be? I mean, all of a sudden, in this, like, world of, you know, uncertainty and terror and you get this moment of just like pure Woo. Chris is laughing at me but <laughs> no I think it's I think it's beautiful yeah it is and it, I, but all of a sudden you get this like respite from that and you you know you get this euphoric thing and you you're looking at the stars and the sun and the trees and everything's different all of a sudden and so you you're a little drunk why. basically yeah you're not <laughs> worried about the saber-toothed tiger that's going to come get exactly. you and it's um, just like oh this is but great you know I think I think it's a great thing too is if we're if we're enjoying something we really should try and enjoy it Seriously, I mean, really, instead of just drinking, it's you're trying to get a great experience from it. And I think what Drew's 
in some ways trying to say is, I mean, really enjoy it and try and be in that moment for a little exactly, bit. Exactly. Yeah. Really embrace what you're drinking, where it's coming from. Think about it for a minute and don't just pound a glass and move on to the next thing. That's very well said. We are intellectual beings and we are emotional beings. And wine absolutely satisfies both sides of the equation <laughs> there. You know, your left brain, your right brain fully engaged when you uh, when you have this go on. So yeah, if you're if you're focusing on the the hedonism in a particular glass, like have at it. If you really want to, you know, break down the technical merits or go on describing the nuances of the nose of a wine, like those are those are fun things to do. It's all enjoyable if you do it right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that brings us back to this complicated glass yeah, in sorry, front of uh, us. Went off no, I mean, on that's, a that's, that's about saber tigers or something. I don't know. No, um, that's great. But that's this. This is the part that I think when we're talking about wine, this because we're we're talking about talking about the place you guys are working, and a place we're all excited about because it's offering a different experience. Um, and we're talking about wine about stuff that people may not have tried before, and we're talking about something in front of us that is complicated and fascinating. And do you like it? Um, that's an interesting question. <laughs> um, let me talk about Georgian wine real quick. Please. That's okay. Um, I <laughs> no, never no got around You're to safe for now. <laughs> no, no. It's, I, I will answer the question when Drew's done. Um, so basically, the earliest archaeological evidence of winemaking in modern humanity comes from either Armenia or Georgia. And this you know, dates back to eight to 10,000 years ago. They found like you know, instances of fossilized grape seeds and winemaking equipment. Um, but I found out as I was researching the history of wine that there's people in Georgia that are using, they're making wine, um, using traditions that are 4,000 to 8,000 years old. Um, and it's just, the Republic of Georgia is really interesting. Wine's just always been, you know, integral to their culture. I mean, if you, I don't know if you've ever seen the Georgian alphabet, but it's actually based on the shapes of vines, like wine vines. Oh, that's excellent. Um, so it's always been integrated into the culture. Um, so the, the way they make these wines is, you know, the they actually ask, sorry, I'm going to nerd out a little bit more. Um, <laughs> they have over 2,500 indigenous varietals, um, and which they still grow, which is phenomenal. Um, but they also use these large clay vessels called quavri, which have been around for, like I said, 10,000 years. And they bury them into the ground. Um, they still stomp the grapes by foot. Um, the wine ferments and macerates in these, you know, large clay vessels. Um, and so you, it's all natural. It's all spontaneous. It's all organic. Mm -hmm. So you get, and, you know, this is a white wine. Obviously, it's amber colored because it stays on the skins just like a red wine would. So it's extracting the color and the tannin. Um, so is this what some would refer to as an orange wine as well now? Sort of. Yeah. Same, same idea. And in, in Georgia, they refer to them as amber wines. Okay. Um. But anyway, so basically, you know, if you know anything about the history of Georgia, which I didn't until I started reading this, but the Soviet Union came in in the 1920s and took it over. So it used to have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people who know how to make these quavri and had all these, had the base knowledge of how to make Georgian quavri wine. Um, but the Soviets came in and sort of like nationalized everything. And so they did everything like, you know, two big mass produced winemaking factories, no quavri. And, you know, the, Georgia didn't really get their independence until 1990. Uh, in that time, unfortunately, all these quavri makers either died out or they had gone on to different things. So now there's only two or three who actually have the expertise to make the quavri. Um, and, you know, it's not something that's super profitable. So they have some problems getting, you know, young people on board with taking the two decades it takes to become an expert in this. So it's something that, you know, is probably going to die out within our lifetime. Um, 
But the cool thing is, in 2013, UNESCO made, protected the traditional way of Georgian winemaking um, by making like a heritage culture. Uh, and UNESCO is kind of the is the international body that uh, protects regionality, right? Yeah. So it's the same one that restrict uh, Parmesan cheese and you know specific things from coming from regions, right? Um, but yeah, so I, I mean, I guess uh, to make a long story short, this is just a wine that is you know very culturally centered and is done using these like very old methods. So it's providing an experience that you just don't really get anywhere else in the world. And now we're back to the critical question that Mr. Grocky asked. Do you like this? That's always the question when it comes down to wine. <laughs> um, I think I like the palate, and I find the nose interesting. Because the nose, I'm getting, it almost has a vinegary, like a natural vinegary smell to it. Should um, we do the grid? I, I think no. it might be. <laughs> like a, a rice wine almost. Yeah. A rice wine vinegar, that yeah, is. Yeah, it has, a, has a, a wine vinegar nose on it, but there's no... No, to very little of that profile, that acetic acid in the palate of it. See, I get a lot of sort of like Christmas spice, like cinnamon, nutmeg, clove. And the, there's there's the, just something it's something odd on the nose that I'm I'm not sure if I'm describing it right as in as a vinegary thing. It's that sharpness mm-hmm. in the palate that I'm not sure how to describe. I was I was kind of thinking ketchup at first. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense to you. It, it does. I think, I think that's kind of like my blend between the the brandy and the the grape soda, and then I've got Ziploc bag and yeah, because it's there's adhesive. This, it's, it's, this, <laughs> it's not boring. That's no, for sure. it's very it's interesting, it, it, and it, I I'm finding it more fascinating to to smell. When I taste it, it it basically puts a stranglehold on my tongue because it's just sort of like like. I don't know, just like death grip of tartness around my tongue where I'm like, okay, now I can't taste anything. Can you let go so I can taste things? Mm. Uh, and I, I kind of, like the more that I'm, I keep swishing and trying to, to taste it, and I, I guess I get more along the lines of washed corn cob. So like mm. the sweet corn that I smelled, I didn't taste nearly as much. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, here's the thing about Quaver line, and as, you know, I, as much as I'm a, interested in and a fan of it, it can either be, you know, it can be good. Mm-hmm. Or <laughs> the worst wine I ever had was actually a Quavery wine, which I was kind enough to open up for Chris a few months ago. Um, I mean, fresh notes of septic tank and mm. broken sewage line. Delicious. Fermented cow manure, yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, when you make a wine that way, you, you take a lot of chance. But, um, <laughs> you know, when it hits, it can, it's, we, because we had, we went to Rouge Tomat and, New York City, and somehow we started talking to the Psalm, and next thing I know, we're doing like a lineup of Georgian Quavery wines. And we had some that were very good and like super dynamic and, you know, actually delicious to drink. Um, this one I actually had never tried before. I just had it in my cellar, and I'm like, let's let's open this up. Um, yeah, so this is new for all of us. Yeah. Um, but back to my point, I mean, I think Chris mentioned this on natural wine, just because it's natural doesn't mean it's going to be good. Um I actually kind of like this, but I'm more nerdy than most. And I, it's re- it really needs food, I think, to kind of tie it together. Yeah. I, I think so, it's too. It's not something you would just drink a glass of on itself. It's really weird, and I 
I like it too. Like I, I want to go back to it kind of for the same reasons that, you know, you just keep getting more yeah. and, and more to think about, to ponder. Right. Sometimes you kill a glass because it's just so good you can't stop drinking it. Sometimes you kill a glass because like the J.B. Becker, it's so acidic that you keep wanting to quench the thirst that it creates. <laughs> Sometimes it's just like you're, you keep thinking and thinking and thinking before you know it, the bottle's gone because right. you just needed to keep going back it's to like, it. But what is it? And yeah. it's gone. Yeah, I think this, this is one of those it's a it's a thinker it's not a it's not a pounder it's not friendly right. it's 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 definitely not a porch pounder yeah. no but I, I think that's everything that some of us like in food and drink is it is challenging it is a thinker it's it offers some history it offers some real regionality um it offers you know fascinating backstory and something that if you were sitting with somebody like I'm sitting with today we can really enjoy it from a different perspective Mm-hmm. But if you say, hey, and a question I'm going to ask for a minute, like, hey, what are you recommending for people to drink this summer? This is not high on the list. <laughs> no. Probably not. Yeah. No. But at the same time, am I really glad I tasted it? Absolutely. Because I learned something and I got some fascinating flavors and aromas out of it. Yeah. So, And I'm getting sour cherry now, too, by the way. I like that. That's a good call, too, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that hits you with a left hook, which I don't it, think we should necessarily aggressive. be scared like, to do, but no. we, it just has to be done in an appropriate manner and forum. Um, maybe not this clover wine, but we definitely want to feature some and right. maybe tie them in more with the food pairing Very cool. exploration. You, you look at the, the, the movement of fine food, of slow food, if you want to call it that, you know, it's really kind of a, a reflection on what you're eating and drinking, not just as a, a means to sustenance, but really as a, just kind of an, a, a moment of enjoyment and contemplation, et cetera, et cetera. This wine mm-hmm. is good for those particular moments. When you want to walk around a cocktail party and meet people and not think too much about what's in your glass, this is not good because <laughs> it's, it's, it's distracting you from yeah. what you're trying to do. Because it might loosen, loosen you up, but you're in the process screaming at it like what yeah. are you yeah. I think um, that's great. what's your name again I need just a moment <laughs> <laughs> trying to figure out this wine give me a moment I think that's a great description of this wine it is a distracting wine um, it, it's distracting you, you're right if you were it, is, it would be distracting um, but am I thankful that Drew brought it today yes so one <laughs> thanks Drew for bringing some interesting stuff for us to taste I mean I do what I can that sounds <laughs> That sounded like he's being polite. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> Chris is being polite. He's trying to sell me a vacuum. <laughs> uh, I, I guess what I was trying to do is pivot onto uh, the question of we're coming into somewhere, we're coming into hotter weather, we're coming into um, some, I guess, generic recommendations on things for people to drink during the summer. I know it's a big topic, and a lot of people um, just love drinking wine in the summertime, you know, lighter, brighter interesting wines so i was wondering if you guys had a few recommendations uh your friend in mine stacy Rowe, mentioned if uh you guys knew any um rosés for for white girls like her uh, i yes. believe is what she said rosé all day exactly rosé all day no problem um summer of rosé <laughs> i'm a believer in the uh, you know the the brosé movement i think you know more <laughs> more men need to not be afraid of uh of the pink wine in the glass um rosé rosé can really run a gamut right and it's not typically associated with fine wine because it tends to be a little thinner and not have as much dimensionality to it however uh you will occasionally come across an example like drew and i did the other night uh from mount etna we were drinking a uh, a 
a Rosado that was just absolutely kind of it changed the game and as drew said a couple of times i believe you said uh this is a real wine like this isn't just a, yeah just it a, wasn't like we're drinking just rose. a summertime rosé something you drink this out is a of real the wine so yeah it was it was made from norella moscalesi the the grape that we're talking about that's indigenous to sicily that uh has kind of become the the pinot noir of one of the world's uh, biggest active volcanoes and it's interesting because of the volcanic area so everything about mount etna is kind of fascinating it's got a a very traditional method of winemaking drew is describing you know george's history if you you go back these palmentos that were used to crush grapes basically a donkey pushed around this lever that ended up uh crushing grapes and letting free run juice uh fall into into vats sounds kind of like mezcal production now in um in uh in mexico in a lot of ways well the the, uh, the EU banned this particular practice because it's not sanitary to have a donkey standing in the grapes that are being pressed. And that's, that's, right. fair. that's fair. That's <laughs> fair. So, actually yeah. costs a lot of people jobs in their farms in Sicily. It, which it, is, uh, it, almost, it almost ruined winemaking on yeah. Etna in general. Everybody had to leave winemaking because they couldn't, they couldn't afford to create new clean facilities. So winemaking was, was destroyed on Mount Etna for a while. This particular traditional method went away. Uh, a few other producers uh, you know, still saw the merits of making wine uh, just because, I mean, you've got all these different lava flows from from different centuries, different decades. I mean, it's still an active volcano. They say that one of the, the most active volcanoes right. in the world, actually. They say that you know when the when the the wispy smoke is coming off the top of the volcano, and it blows really nicely in one direction. They say, "Oh, the, uh, she's wearing her veil today." You know, uh, they yeah. they have a whole mythology built up mm-hmm. around this. You know, and anyone could have their home destroyed at any time in, in these towns, all the way, you know, down through to Catania, which is kind of the big commerce hub on Mount Etna. But uh, yeah, Norello Mascalesi is uh, this this grape that's starting to get a little more play. Sommeliers are really, really into it just because of the the dimension and the quality that it can lend. Um, we, we're supposed to be talking about rosé, so to, yeah. to, to bring it back there, we are going to have a, a Norello Mascalesi Rosado by the glass, right? We absolutely are. Yeah. So uh, I, I would say that that's uh, that's great if you want a little more more meat and full fruit to your uh, to your rosé drinking. That's uh, definitely got dimension. Like we say, it plays more like a, a real wine than just kind of something to quench your thirst in the sun. But it um, also pleases the people who just want to have their thirst quenched in the sun. So yeah, it, it works. Best of both worlds. It mm-hmm. works. It is it is versatile. We have. Um, let's see what else there's. For uh, summertime drinking, yeah, yeah. Uh, just in general, I'm I'm a big fan of Vino Verde. Uh, okay, it's it, it's got kind of like the, this really fresh zestiness to it. Comes from uh, coastal Portugal, and just uh, uh, made an incredibly fresh style uh, that mm. that really kind of plays with just nice light fruit <laughs> notes, lower in alcohol. I think it's it's great summertime, just kind of pounding wine. You know, if you really want to. Right. Mm-hmm. And for, green for... wine being the green grapes, not. Yeah, that's, I'm assuming not yes. like actually green wine. Yeah, Vino Verde is its own its own region in Portugal, which is interesting. It's uh, it, it's it's got kind of a lot of stigma attached from fine wine drinkers too. Kind of the same as rosé, you know. You can't really take Vino Verde that seriously, but there are some great examples that kind of give you something to think about while you're just enjoying a glass in the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, have we talked about Riesling yet? <laughs> 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 you like Riesling in the summertime? I mean, you know, it's uh, no. Let me Do you like uh, it more in the winter or in the summer. I like it equally year round. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> um, but, yeah, let think... me let me differentiate though. Um, so something I think was, is great for the summer, 
something like the Maison Fouché Cremant d'Alsace, um, but bubbles. I mean, who doesn't like bubbles That's during Cremant de Loire? True. Did I say Alsace? Yeah. Sorry, Cremant de Loire. Thanks, Drew. <laughs> Way to go. Fired. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, you know, Cremant de Alsace is absolutely fantastic too, though. It is. Maybe we'll have some of those as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, bubbles on the patio. I think is going to be a big hit at Farmers Creek site and in Tavern. Um, thanks wow i'm just all so so fired, fired. <laughs> yes um, yeah i mean people people do love they love sparkling wine i'm still getting my head around it as a thing um I, i'm still getting still getting my head around it but it's obviously very popular can we say two things about sparkling wine oh please uh, only two so many so many styles so, so are many great th- for summertime drinking that's my pre-point but the the two points people should drink more of it because it's incredibly versatile with with food. If you want to talk about wine that goes with most things, sparkling wine is, is is great. So people should drink more of it, and people shouldn't just associate it with celebratory. Right. You know, it, it yeah. shouldn't just be a toasting wine. It should be. It should be a, should be a, be a main course wine. It should be a yeah, real thing. Yeah. yeah. And and number two, don't limit yourself to the champagne flute. If you want to treat it like a real wine, put it in a real wine glass. Like, you know, we'll, we'll put it in a Burgundy, a Bordeaux glass, uh, a white wine glass, a Riesling glass, a Sauvignon Blanc glass, depending on what grapes it's made from, et cetera, and what showcases the aromatics a little bit better. Because you're not getting a lot on the nose when you put something in a champagne flute. No. Champagne flutes are designed to have a minimal surface area and to really kind of showcase that stream of bubbles from the bottom, too, so that the wine doesn't go flat as quickly. So it works very well in that respect. Not necessarily in the enjoyment respect. Mm. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you said that too because you know we treat sparkling wine because it's an actual wine, so we treat it like a real wine, um, and it just has just as much aromatic complexity as any other wine. Um, so I, th- I think you were at our dinner. Obviously, um, yes. We used the we used a wider rimmed glass for our sparkling wine, and we hope that showcased the wine off a little bit more. I don't know if you noticed that at all or. Well, I noticed we changed glasses, but like, you know, you see different beer glasses. I'm more familiar with that side of things than the different versions for wine, other than obviously the champagne flute, which is pretty ubiquitous in the wine serving world. So that's why I find it interesting that you're trying something different with that as well. Yeah, we think it's we think it's important to just kind of go after the best presentational quality of a wine rather than the the tried and true method of putting it in a glassware that you expect. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we're, we're not out to, you know, reinvent the wheel here, but that's just one of those things that's pretty easy to to edit when it comes yeah. to uh, a service decision is that, mm-hmm. you know, put it, in a, put it in a glass that showcases it best. Well, nice. we've even discussed this over at Joe Bean before with their coffee s- serving, uh, serving it in a diner mug versus a wine glass versus a paper cup. And you're getting a completely different experience because different vessels present the smell to you differently and the, the smell isn't is important for you actually tasting what you're drinking mm-hmm. and it's, it's funny that you say that too because um if you're somewhat familiar with wine uh, rydell makes different wine glasses for pretty much every grape varietal like cabernet shiraz uh riesling sauvignon blanc I think about seven or eight years ago, I went to the Wine and Culinary Center, and I think it was George Riedel that was actually leading the seminar. It was one of the Riedels, I believe that was that was him. And I I went in there saying, okay, you know, this is this is buying a vacuum right now, right? Like this, I'm going to get the the sales pitch. 
but it was very technical to, you know, pour it from this glass into this glass, into this glass, same wine. Like you're pouring it from one glass to the other, experience it, watch where it hits your palate and, and how you smell it. And you'll be damned if it doesn't really come across differently <laughs> to your point. Yeah. There's, there's a difference in glassware and don't let anybody tell you that there's, there's not. If you go into a place, you know, that's uh, giving you a four ounce glass that's filled up to the top, then they're not taking wine that seriously. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's also the important thing is people can say the stuff all they want. They can say all the tasting notes of a wine. They can say all these things, what it comes down to. And I think you can both agree, you know, when you're doing blind tastings, Go out and taste it. Go out and taste it. Even if they don't tell you anything about it. Say, hey, here's all these glasses. Taste and see if you think there's a difference. Yeah. Don't have them describe it. Say, hey, I'd like to try this and this. The really important point here is go to a place where you don't have to think about all these things yourself, where you have some professional that's taking care of you at the table that can explain to you exactly why these things are the way they are if you have a question. <clears throat> and you know, once you've, you've heard a couple of statements like that, you, you can just trust and let it go and know that you're, you're being taken care of in the most optimal way. And I think there's a restaurant in Leroy for that. Oh, look at yes. that. <laughs> yes. Look at that. That's Farmer's Creekside right Tavern in. and Inn, 1 Main Street, Leroy, New York. Not fired. Opening <laughs> opening at the end of June. I'm hired. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the team. Sprinkles because I'm worth it. <laughs> so Drew's drinking Riesling. Anything specific that's accessible for people that you'd want the people to try out in the summertime? Yeah, and let's keep it local. Um, one of my favorite Rieslings comes out of the Herman Weimer. Um, Herman J. Weimer, sorry. Mm-hmm. This is giving me the look. <laughs> uh, but, you know, for summertime enjoyment, try out their semi-dry Riesling. Every year it's very consistent. It's always elegant, rich, mm-hmm. aromatic, always pleasing. And need some more? You mentioned, uh, you mentioned Bloomer Creek before. You're a fan of their whites, right? Yeah, uh, I would I would say one of my favorite summertime rieslings is uh, is Ravine's dry riesling. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean Ravine's is another consistent one. Um, talking about Bloomer Creek for a second, they are into the natural wine. Phase. Where where are they located? I'm not as familiar. Uh, with so them. they're they are on the east side of Seneca Lake, kind of near Chateau Lafayette Renault. Well, well, both um, Ravine's and. Um, Herman J. Weimer are Weimer's on the, on the west side. Northwest of, Seneca, yeah. yeah. Ruiz is actually, they have one in Geneva and then they have one on Cuckoo Lake. Um, <laughs> okay, but it, they, they have one on, on Seneca and that's, you know, it's Ravines and Shaw and Fox Run and uh, Herman J. Weimer all in that same road uh, right on Seneca. So it's actually a nice little, nice little wine tour right there. Sure is. And, you know, every time I go up to the, I was just at Seneca Lake this weekend, uh, I'm always struck by the beauty there. As much as I tend to think about, you know, France or Italy, Mount Etna or, you know, the Republic of Georgia, um, there's something to be said for being able to go to the Finger Lakes any weekend and just have this very serene, beautiful, scenic thing to look at and enjoy wine. Yeah. So I think that might be our takeaway for today is, well, two takeaways. We've got one. So go out and experience the wine for yourself. Go out and taste. Go out and find what you like. And if you want professional service and professional opinions, take the short drive out to Leroy. It's closer than the Finger Lakes. It's closer than Canandaigua from the city of Rochester. And go visit Farmer's Creekside Tavern and Inn located 1 Main Street in 
in Leroy. So uh, social media plugs for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. You can find us on uh, Instagram and on Facebook at, at Farmers Creekside. And uh, like I said, we'll be opening at the end of June. <laughs> Which is very exciting. Um, and Drew, anything specifically for yourself? Um, I mean, you can follow me on Instagram if you want. I, you'll hear me nerd out about wine pretty much constantly every day. Chris always makes fun of me because I'm constantly Instagramming our wines as we're trying to do the grid. But, I'm, trying um, to be, I'm trying to be in the moment, and he's Instagramming everything. So. <laughs> Honestly, all my wine notes are basically on Instagram. I don't even keep a notebook anymore. Um, but, <laughs> so it's at Drew Chapat, which you'll never be able to spell, so I don't even know why I'm doing this. It's a lot of consonants. <laughs> yeah. Just like T-S-C-H-A-P-P-A-T is how you spell his last name. I think that was very succinct and proper quevery if you're looking for more information on quevery wines is qve k. what's that k or v. or qver por, por k vi yes kv oh boy wait oh now boy. now <laughs> oh boy oh kveri perfect so i think we ended with so many consonants yeah but so um <laughs> chris and Drew, thanks for coming over and um just as a closing i'm there's a lot of places that open, a lot of people, a lot of places people get excited about. This is a place I am truly excited about, not from just the tasting, but from just the interest in the building and the just level of execution from a preview perspective. Um, and also the care, obviously, from the uh, beverage team. This is a place that's going to be worth a drive and only 30 minutes away from downtown Rochester. So make an effort and go out after the open in late June. So. Guys, thanks for coming over. This is thanks a blast. for having us. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. See you.